Thank you for visiting the openword.org, where you can find a verse-by-verse exposition of almost the entire Holy Bible and other theological resources. Welcome to the next part of the series from Alan Schaefer. We're in Second Corinthians chapter eight, and uh, we're targeting eight, nine, and ten tonight. So um, let's open in a word of prayer. Father, thanks so much for this time we have to sit down and to study your word. I pray that our hearts would be opened, that we would be challenged from your word, that we may understand it. And we thank you for this opportunity, Father. Guide our discussions. Guide our thoughts, and I pray that you would speak now in this time together in Christ's name. Amen. Um, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul is starting to talk about one of his um, projects, which was a taking an offering for the saints in Jerusalem. Now, why did he want to do this? Why was it important for him to do this? Why was he trying to take an offering for the saints? Well, they're poor. What else is going on at this time? There's a famine at this time, right? Um, and in those days, you know, they don't have semis and that trucking food in from all over the place. So, you know, when you had a famine in a particular area, people suffered in that area. They just, you know, they didn't have the um, transportation systems that we have today. Um, and so the people in Jerusalem didn't have you know, enough food to eat. They were hungry. They were starving. And so Paul, when he went to the other parts of the Roman Empire, he was going to take a collection back, um, a gift back to the church at Jerusalem. And he was going to collect this from the churches that he was ministering to. Now, not only was he going to try to help these people, but what else was going on here, too? What else? There's there's something else going on, too. Trying to draw the body together. And how is he doing that? Well, the Jerusalem church was mainly made up of Jews. And these churches were mainly made up of Gentiles. So Paul was thinking, ulterior motive, not only was he going to help them in Jerusalem, but by getting the Gentiles to give of themselves, it would draw the church together. The Jews would, you know, would would benefit from the generosity of the Gentiles and try to heal some of the some of the split. Because one of the things, and again, we've we've hit on this in the class, but I don't think any of us in here really, really, really understand this. Just just how much animosity was between the Jew and the and the Gentiles. Um, you know, transport yourself back to Mississippi in nineteen sixty, you know, with the 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 at the height of the racial tensions down there. And that approximates probably um, what you see going on in the early church. Uh, the Jews hated the Gentiles. They wouldn't eat in their homes. They walked by them. Um, the, the law forbade a Pharisee was not allowed into a Gentile home. It would make him ritually unclean. He wouldn't even take the time to give anyone the time of day um, and that's why, for example, Christ, uh, remember that parable of the Good Samaritan? Why that was so interesting? Because here's a man who fell among thieves, and who walked by? Well, the Pharisee dare not touch the guy. He might become ritually unclean. You know, um, better off that that guy dies than he actually 
un make himself unclean by touching him. Uh, the Levite who took care of the temple, what did he do? Well, he went by on the other side. Why? They dare not touch somebody who's possibly a Gentile, unclean. But what did the Samaritan do? Well, he stopped and helped this person, took him in. Um, these people hated each other. So what Paul wanted to do in this collection was to try and bring the body of Christ together to some extent. And, you know, during this trial by the Gentiles helping the Jews, it would open up the Jews to the concept that, hey, we're one body. There's, there's one family here. Um, it, it would aid in that. And so what Paul was doing is as he was going on his journeys, he was collecting from each of the churches, he was collecting a sum of money to take. Now, what could possibly, th think about this a little bit here, what could possibly some of the people been thinking about Paul? Yeah, he was trying to fleece them. He's trying to take advantage of them. Now, we don't have that problem today, do we? Huh. It was worse today, I think. <laughs> yeah. I saw a guy, in fact, I was just, I'm reading a book by MacArthur called The Truth War. Great book. Yeah, I get it and read it. One just came out. Of course, you read anything John MacArthur wrote, but, but he, in there he talks about a guy named, and I think I saw this guy on TV. I don't know if you've heard of a Gene Scott. I think, I think his name is Gene Scott. And uh, I was first exposed to him back in the 90s, like 1990. When I was out in California, and some guy said, hey, you got to see this guy on TV. And he pulls up this guy, and uh, he was a pretty big guy to start out with. He had a big white beard, and uh, it was in his church. And, and I'm not kidding you. You know, he, he, he had his pulpit here, and he had this ashtray here, and he had this cigar about this long, lit. And he'd, he'd take a drag on this cigar while he was preaching um, to his congregation. And uh, the subject of his sermon basically was Christian liberty. You do anything you want, basically. You want to smoke? You, you know, we're, we're free in Christ. Don't let anybody, you know, lay any law trip on you kind of thing. Do what you want. And that was his mantra. And not only that, but I guess, you know, he if you came to his church, you had to sign a pledge card saying that, Whatever you gave to the church, he could use however he wanted. You know, there was no accountability. Um, the guy made millions off of people. Now, the, the funny, what I find amazing, just think of, you know, when I think about this, is number one, why are people so gullible as to go to his church? They want to do what they want to. People don't want to be accountable for anything. So they go to Well, the, the, the point is there's there's enough idiots out there that will follow anybody for any reason, you know. Um, but it's amazing to me, number one, that he would have the the courage to do something like this, to take advantage of people. But then I feel sorry for the people to whom he took advantage of, you know, that thought, you know, they're doing God, giving this money to the Lord when this guy was just taking them for everything they had, all right? Um, and, you know, that's one of the problems we have. You know, when we look at the television preachers and, and a lot of what's going on out there, the false prophets, one of the marks of a false prophet in Second Peter is that they are covetous. They want things for themselves. And when you look at somebody who's supposedly a great preacher, but yet 
he is indulging himself, living an indulgent lifestyle. He's a false prophet. All right, that's that. That just goes without saying. We're not saying the guy's got to drive a rusted-out Volkswagen to to church, but uh, you know, like Frederick Casey Price, his congregation gave him a Rolls Royce, and he made him take it back because he didn't like the color. He wanted a different color. There's something wrong with that. There's something wrong with that mentality, um, where where you take advantage of people. And by the way, the the Bible nowhere does it say the wealth more wealthy you are, the more godly you are. That was what the Pharisees thought. You, you know that, right? The Pharisees thought that godly that that gain was great godliness. And the more wealthy you were, that was a sign of God's God's goodness to you because you deserved it, you earned it, God owed it to you. And so they saw wealth as a sign of God's blessing. And it's not. In fact, Paul's going to talk about, in this chapter here, chapter 8, he's going to talk about giving. He's going to talk about the view of wealth. And he's going to talk about the proper handling of money from the perspective of the, the, the shepherds who take it in, how they should handle it, what they should do with it. Um, if you go to a church where there is no accounting for the money that comes in, get out of there. Go somewhere else. Um, because th that's, that's, not, that's not the way it works. And Paul talks about that here. He says, uh, we make known to you, brother, in verse, verse 1 of chapter 8, the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia, that in a great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded in the riches of their liberality. For I bear witness that according to their ability, yes, and beyond their ability, they were freely willing, employing us with much urgency that we should receive the gift and the fellowship of the ministering to the saints. All right. Now, what you find in these four verses is, is number one, Paul was in the process of taking a collection back to Jerusalem. We know that. All right. In fact, I think he mentions it in 1 Corinthians. So everybody knew what Paul was up to. The Corinthian church knew that Paul was in the process of taking his collection. And Paul says that the churches of Macedonia, now what churches would those be? Thessalonica, Philippi. Um, Berea would probably be more south, but certainly Philippi and Thessalonica were there. Um, and there are probably a church in Neapolis, if there's a church in Neapolis. And it may have been that there were more churches that had been established at that time. But um, these churches were not wealthy. They were not rolling in the dough, so to speak. Um, the Macedonian churches, in fact, Paul says, were poor. And yet, how did they respond to this request? Yeah, now, they gave not only according to their ability, but they gave beyond their ability to give. Their liberality. In fact, what Paul is saying here, they implored us to take the gift. In fact, Paul was saying, I was trying to not take the gift because I knew they couldn't give it, but they wouldn't let me not take it. They wanted me to take this gift for the believers in Jerusalem. And we know about one of these churches, their liberality, because in Philippians chapter 2, Church of Philippi, one of the things that the Philippian church did when Paul was in Rome during his first Roman imprisonment is they sent Epaphroditus to come 
And now what did Epaphroditus bring with him? Well, he brought with him a financial gift for Paul in order to support him while he was under house arrest. All right. Um, they brought some money to him. And not only did they bring money to him, they sent Epaphroditus saying, Epaphroditus, you find out what Paul needs, and if he needs anything, you take care of Paul for us. All right, they actually hired this guy, if you want to think about it. They hired Epaphroditus to go and minister to Paul. That was his job, to take a gift to Paul and to minister to Paul. And these were not wealthy churches. Philippi was not a wealthy church. Thessalonica was not a wealthy church. And in fact, most Christians in that day were not wealthy. Now, you've got a guy, you ever hear John Avanzini? Yeah, well, if you hear about him, don't listen to him. Um, John Avanzini has this concept that God wants, of course, every Christian to be a multimillionaire. And uh, he has said, in fact, that Paul was one of the wealthiest people of his time. And that he even said that the reason Paul was in, held for two years in, um, remember, Caesarea Philippi, was that the Romans were trying to get a bribe from Paul to let him out of prison because Paul had all of this money. And the, 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 you know, Felix and Festus were holding there hoping that maybe Paul would give them a bribe because that's sort of the way it worked back then. You know, if you're really a wealthy individual, you could bribe your way out of a jam. And so the, his, his spin on that was that Paul was extremely wealthy. Jesus Christ was extremely wealthy, according to John Avanzini. He wore designer clothes. Um, he, you know, the, the whole the whole thing where foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests was not that Jesus didn't have a place to stay or anything, but that the disciples had, had failed to make arrangements for his arrival in the city. It wasn't really that Jesus was poor, but rather that um, they had failed to make the arrangements. He's twisted all of Scripture. And he wants people to have this idea that the early Christians were extremely wealthy. Listen, Paul said, not many wise, not many mighty, not many noble. Right. In fact, most of the Roman Empire were slaves and Christianity appealed to the large part to the people that were slaves. Look around the world today. How many Christian millionaires do you know? Anybody know a Christian millionaire? I got one, maybe. I'm not a millionaire, but yeah. In the congregation, in the congregation, the actual, the actual guy that comes to your church and sits in the pew next to you. How many millionaires show up? How many, how many famous people show up? How many mighty? Isn't that interesting that God's don't go? He doesn't go after the high, fluting ones. He goes after the. What did Paul say? We're the scum of the earth, the off-scouring. He goes after the riffraff. Look at the riffraff in your church. We're all riffraff, right? We're not anything special. you know. And this idea that Christ, that God somehow wants every Christian a millionaire driving a Lincoln and a Cadillac and have millions of dollars and wearing fancy suits is false teaching. Question on that. Are they getting that more from Old Testament teaching then, or Old Testament? They twist the scriptures. The problem, the, the, the problem is these people twist the scriptures. And you have a clientele out there that is so gullible, right, that they don't know the difference. They don't know the difference. People are gullible. And um, 
Pardon? I didn't mean to catch you up. I said, I was about to say, I know where they get that from. Where? They get that from, that's part of Abraham's covenant with Abraham. Amen. Blessings. Well, some of them, well, number one, most of the false prophets aren't smart enough to know that, to go there. But, but some would try to say, well, see, God promised Abraham, you know, this, this kind of thing. Therefore, we get it, too. Um, you can't make that statement. Because most, most of the time, look throughout all of history, all right? Were the people of God really the, the wealthy, the powerful? The affluent? No, we've never been. They say if you if you be like obedient to you know to the word and, and you were like you enter into the land of milk and honey. You know, you know like the blessing or the curse out of out of you know. from you know, you go from being poor and you know, Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well let's think about this a minute. Let's th and this is a good time to discuss it. Let's think about this a minute. Why did God save you? Why did God save you? He wanted to, but what what is the what is the ultimate purpose of God saving you? For the good pleasure of his will. He chose you because he wanted to. But why did God choose to glorify himself? But, but what is God accomplishing in salvation? It's a relationship, right? It's a relationship with the living God. You know, the joy of heaven is not walking on streets of gold or whatever that is or, or, or the beauty there or whatever. The joy of heaven is fellowship with God. The horror of hell, other than the physical torment, is abandonment by God. You're forever abandoned. It's a relationship. God saved me so that I can have a relationship with him. He did not save me to make me a millionaire. All right? Because by definition, think about it, by definition... If I become a Christian or I obey God because I get goodies, then why am I obeying him? For the goodies. I'm not obeying God or I'm not, I'm not I don't have a relationship with God because, because I want to have a relationship with him. I'm having a relationship with him because I get all kinds of good stuff in, you know. That's why the we are chosen by God's grace and complete the blessing and adopt the son. So adopt the son implies family. We are we're part of his family. He wants the, the whole God designed redemption to restore a shattered relationship. To restore a relationship with the living God. That's what God's... Now, there's some good things that go along with that, right? Heaven is a good thing. All right? But God did not save me so that I could walk around heaven. God did not save me so I could live on streets of gold. God did not save me so that I would have happiness for eternity. God saved me to restore a relationship with Him. 
All right. That that's the end product of salvation is a relationship with the living God to be able to enjoy fellowship with God. And if I'm going to enjoy fellowship with God, then I can't have an inward focus, right? Because what is an inward focus? And what is selfishness? And what is pride? Sin. At the bottom, at the, at the basic level, what is sin? Sin is an exaltation of self over God. You know, how did Adam sin? He didn't trust God. He didn't trust him. He asserted his will over that of God's will. You know, how do I sin against people? Well, when I insert my will over their will, you know, when I, when I want something and I don't care about them, but it's for me, it's, it's, it's self-centeredness. And the problem with that kind of preaching is that the root of it is greed. The root of all of that kind of thinking is greed. Become a Christian and you'll be a millionaire. That is greed. That is, it's based on sin. Now, how can that be right? It can't be. It's idolatry is what it is. It can't be right. Whenever somebody tells you become a Christian because everything will go okay with you, that... That's not why you become a Why do you become a Christian? So that you can have a relationship with God. That's why. It's not what you get out of it. It's, 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 it's the relationship. It's the joy of the relationship, the fellowship with God. All this other stuff is, is icing on the cake. And the problem is when you have anybody stand up and, and you know, Become a Christian and, and you'll, you'll, you, every, life will be wonderful. Well, maybe it won't be wonderful. Maybe it won't be. It may get worse. It may get worse. It may get a lot worse. Because now you become the enemy of the world. You're an oddball. You know? You're a weirdo now. Um, you, you swim against the crowd. And not only do you have to fight the world, you have to fight the devil. And now you got your flesh you got to deal with, too. Your own corruption you're fighting. So the, the whole point, you know, when you step back and, and, and get yourself up to 20,000 feet and look at what's being taught out there, anybody that, that makes Christianity into this, this prosperity kind, any, any kind of prosperity spin to Christianity is evil. It is false teaching, period. That does not mean that God does not bless us. Every, you know, everything I have is a blessing from God. My very next breath that I'm sitting here is a blessing from God. He owes me nothing but hell. I'm, I'm blessed by him. But I'm not a Christian because I get all of this stuff. That, that's not why. Look at, look, at the, look at the wealthy people who get married. Why do they get married? Money, wealth. You know, woman marries some rich guy. You know, so when he kicks off, she can have all of his money. You know, what, Anna Nicole Smith, I guess she was one of those, right? She married some, what, 80-year-old 80, 80 guy that's about ready to die, gets all of his money. And what did it do to her? It ruined her life. You, you telling me she loved that guy? Come on. They don't have it. All the money in the world and can't be happy. You know, and, and and the whole point here, folks, is that God did not. Now, it is true that I'm going to have 
wealth beyond belief in heaven, but it's in heaven I get it. It's not here. Benny Hinn says, I don't need the gold in heaven, I want it now. Well, the only gold Benny Hinn's going to get, I hate to tell you this, is what he's going to get now, because he certainly isn't going to have anything when he gets to heaven, because he's not going to get to heaven. A guy who teaches that there are nine members in the Trinity is not getting to heaven. All right? I'm, the guy's a false prophet. Huh? Yeah, he came up with that while he was preaching. The tough part is when you say that you know everything I have is a blessing from God. Well, someone who has less is then blessed less. Uh, I mean, where do you? Because from the eternal grand scheme of things, there's no difference, right? Look at heaven. What do we have in heaven? Everything. We're going to have wealth beyond possible imagination and belief. All right, so what if you go through 40 years of your life and, you know, you only make 20 grand a year and the next guy makes 30 grand a year compared to eternity? What's that? Nothing. Yeah, it, it's Some not. And you know, and you know what? God has a right. God has a right to dispense to whoever He will. Right? You know, not all men are created equal. You realize that we're not all created equal. We have equal standing before the law, but nobody has the same abilities. Not every human being can do everything. I can't sing. I will never make it to American Idol. I can't do that, all right? Try as I might, I'm going to be worse than what Sanjaya. I don't know how he's still there. Golly, Moses. You know, I got to have been booted off a long time ago. They're still trying to figure out how he's making it, you know. But, um, the... the <laughs> But look, look. Well, remember the parable of the pounds and the well, remember the parable of the talents, right? What happened to the parable of the talents? Well, the master called the servants in. He gave one guy how many? Five. One guy got two. One guy got one. Why did he give? Why did he give them all the same amount? See what they do. The point here is this, and this top thing about it: your reward in heaven is not based on what you have. It's based on what you do with what you have. It's based on faithfulness. It's not based on amount. It's based on faithfulness. Faith and wisdom. Yeah. God, if God gives you a, you know, in fact, here's the deal. The more you have, the more you're responsible, and probably the less your eternal reward is going to be. How to take care of it. You know? or yeah. That's and God promised he'd take care of our needs, right? And so what, what I've tried to do in my own life, you know, I like nice things, folks. I really do. I like nice things, but I've always prayed, and I, I pray many times that I would be satisfied with the portion that God gave me. Not with someone else's portion, with the portion that he gave me. To be faithful with what I have. If God wants to give me more, that's fine. If he doesn't, well, that's all right, too. I'm fine. I'm just more responsible then. The more money you have, the more you're responsible, right? Because it's not yours anyways. Is that proper? 
something about the rich man, you know, worries about his wealth, but the poor man hears no threat. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know, the more you have, the more you have, the more you have to insure, you know. Did the Nicodemus or the John chapter 4, but, you know, Elphine Sallis, and then you that was the that was a rich young ruler, Luke yeah. 19 or whatever. Um, folks, God saved us to have a relationship with Him, and that's more important than all the money in the world. All the money in the world will not buy you relationship. You know that that's something you, you look at the wealthy people; they they're the ones that are most miserable. People with the most money are the most miserable on the planet. You know, it's a curse. Someone did someone did a study on the people who uh, won the lottery, and it ruined their lives. Most people's lives were ruined when they won the lottery because all the money and all the deadbeat relatives now that want a cut of the cut of it, and you know, people it ruins you. So why would you consider it a blessing? It's not. Winning the lottery is not. But 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 whatever God has given you, you're responsible for what God has given you. God wants you to be a steward. Here's the point, folks. You're a steward of 100%, not the 90. There are Christians that say, well, I'll give my God my 10% and then I can blow the rest of it as I please. No, you're responsible for all of it. You're, you're responsible for the 100%. We're a steward of every every breath, every opportunity, every dollar, every nickel, every penny you get is a stewardship. How are you managing it? You know, now, you know, God wants you to, within reason, enjoy things. There's nothing wrong with going to Applebee's next week and enjoying a meal together and having some of those hot wings. Oh. You know, some good hot wings or, or something like that. There's nothing wrong with that. That's a blessing from God. We should appreciate that. But that's not what we live for. You know, God's not saying, well, don't. I don't want you to go eat out. I want you to give that money to a missionary in Bongo Bongo. You know, we, we should give. We should support God's work. But God's given us certain things within reason, within balance to enjoy. But when somebody comes along and starts preaching this prosperity gospel, every Christian is a millionaire, and if you got a disease, you're not, you know, somehow slaying the spirits or whatever it is. That is false teaching. That's false teaching. There, you read Second Peter chapter two. Paul says, or the Peter says, they're they're scabs. You know what a scab is? It's it's that skin that's on a sore. They're like a scab. They're a hidden reef. Driving along, you know, not driving along, but you're floating along on a nice bike. All of a sudden, the bottom of your boat's ripped out. He says there are spots and blemishes. You know what spots and blemishes are? See, if you knew, if you knew Greek, you'd understand what Paul's talking about there. He's talking about bodily fluids on underwear. That's the imagery. He says these guys are like, well, you fill in the blanks. All right, see. That's that's what he thinks of them. False teachers. He says they're brute beasts made to be taken and destroyed. What's a brute beast? It's an animal of unreasoning. It's just all it's good for is to shoot it and eat it. It's not good for anything else. 
there's a, there's a right way to view money and a wrong way to view money. The right way to view money is that every resource that God has given you is a stewardship. What's a stewardship? You don't own it. You manage it. Now, God has given us certain principles for management. Proverbs is full of them, right? Principle for management is you don't spend more than you make. Duh. Most Americans haven't caught on to that one yet. Credit cards are killing them. Old Testament minor prophets, usually. Minor prophets, mostly they're talking about prophets saying, you know, righteousness. Living righteously. That's the main theme. And another second theme is help poor, help widow. Well, one of the great, orphans. one of the big, you didn't take our. our you went in, no good. Yeah. Help each other. If you'd have taken our. Minor prophets you, you got it. If you'd if you have taken one of our, our the, when we went through the minor prophets, one of the big picture items that you see in the minor prophets, there's like three major sins in the minor prophets. Idolatry, of course, is all over the place. But the second major sin is a oppression of the poor. And that is throughout the minor prophets. He said, you sell the poor for a pair of shoes. All right. Folks, realize that everything you get is from the hand of God. And the way you get money is that you work for it. You don't steal it from other people. You don't deceive other people. You don't take advantage of others. God has given us certain principles of wise investment. Invest your money wisely. All right? We are to invest our money. We're, we are, because there's coming a day when you may not be able to work. You need to invest your money wisely so that you can live on it. God did not say spend every nickel you have. He wants you to manage it. It's a management kind of thing. You know, we, we go to church. Sometimes we buffet, you know, we're all together, talking together. Sometimes we help outside homeless people and helping sometimes in a special uh, evangelical program. We, we, we enjoy it. Learn to be. So, you know, people, they're not going to church. They're always penny scary in the inside of home, you know. They, they the locks the cars scratch worry about it all the time. That's not happy. No. That's my thought, you know. Be generous. Yeah. Be generous. Yeah. Learn to be generous. Yeah. You know, um you know, when I go out and eat I give twenty percent tips. Twenty percent, you know, what are you saving so much for? Be generous. Those people work hard. They need to make a living too. You know, be generous. Learn to be, and, and you know, you might say, well, that's kind of a funny thing to do. Well, you know, what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to train myself. It's slowly working. It takes a while, you know. Train yourself to be generous. To not hold on to things so tightly that, you know, when God has to take them, he's got to rip your fingers apart to take, to take it, you know. Learn, learn, learn to hold on to things loosely. Because God says, I'll take care of you, right? I'll take care of you. It comes down to the listening to God. He'll show you opportunities to be generous. Even if it's just little things, little tiny things. I think Christian, Christian's life might yeah. be very important generosity. Being generous. How was Christ? Was he a cheapskate? You think Christ was a cheapskate? 
you don't have any house. I mean, Christ was probably, you know, Christ was one of the most giving people that ever lived. He was not a cheapskate. And look at the generosity of God. You know, God, God has given us an abundance of beauty and things in this life. You know, all of a sudden you're saying, well, you know, I, I don't, you know, I'm not driving that new Cadillac. Yeah, but, you know, you've got a vehicle, which is a, ahead of most people in the world, right? Anybody in here starving to death? Our problem is we eat too much. Most of us. It's Christian symbol, though. Yeah. Jesus was born in the manger, you know, the very low-class room. That's Christian image, you know. So we, we should be follow that image, Jesus' image. Live, live simply. Don't spend all your money. Learn to save. Learn to give. Be generous. You know, and, and you'll be happier. You will. You'll be a lot happier. Then some of you sitting in their house with their temperature at 50 degrees because they're afraid to spend another 10 bucks for fuel, you know, they're going to die and have millions of dollars in the bank, you know, I mean, yeah. Yeah. But my next two friends is small house. And see, you see, God, you understand, God does not want you overcome by financial worry. All right. And and the reason most people overcome by financial worry is because they violated God's principles of finance. You spend more money than you have and you go and hawk, you're going to have financial worry. You're going to have that. Christian is mine. I think confidence is very important. Will, will, will we believe the Bible? We believe it, you know? You believe it or you don't? Oh, sometimes, you know, between, between something like that. You know? That's why Jesus said, believe it, you believe, you believe. Three times, four times, ask him. Yeah. Do you really believe it? And that's the question we have to ask. Do we really believe the Bible? And, you know, I think it's inappropriate for us to ask God to help us to be content with what God has given us, right? Because you realize, what, what is Madison Avenue? What is the job of marketing to make you discontent with what you have? To make you discontent, you know? Why should you buy a new car? Well, you need to get from A to B, not because of prestige, you know? Yeah, I like the color, you know? The, the point is, how many, how many of us... Stop and think about how many Americans buy a car based on need and value and the features of the vehicle to match with what they need it to do. You do. How many? How many? Amer how many? Does the average American do that? No. No, they don't. No. Well, they better because this is all they're going to get. We're not to be like the world. Here's the point, folks. We're not to think like the world. You understand that? We're not to think like them. So when you start thinking like the world, now you've got a real problem, right? Because the world, the way the world thinks is go in debt up to your eyeballs. 
indulge yourself. That's not what the Bible says. That's not how the scripture tells us to live. The world says live above your means. One of the things, in fact, I was listening to it on the way in on Fox News. One of the big problems now is all these uh, these mortgages that people got now that the economy's going down just a little bit. All of a sudden, you know, they can't make their payments. The interest goes up and now all of a sudden they can't make their payments. Well, now whose fault is that? Why? They're blaming the lenders, but yes, yeah, it's just their, their fault. It's your fault. It's their fault. They bought more than what they need. You buy more than you need. Most people buy a house too big for their needs. Most do. You know, most, you know, we, we live above our means as Americans. In America, we live above our means. And we go out and we borrow money to help us live above our means. We're in debt. And then when we need or have an opportunity to give to the church, we can't. Because by the time we pay our Visa bill and our MasterCard bill and our American Express bill and the two car payments and our house payment and for the furniture that we got and for the boat that we got, we don't have anything left over. Because we've indulged it among ourselves. We're not to think like the world. We're to be different than the world. Doesn't mean we can't enjoy those things, but we have to do them in balance. Live within your means. And Paul is saying here that the saints, we'll never get through this passage. The saints in Macedonia didn't have, but they gave. They started cutting into their necessities. Now that's something, that's something there's, there's, a, there's a principle here. And I think a principle is this. We should give until it costs us something. What's it cost you to give your money to God? Let's say all of a sudden you say, we're going to give 10 bucks a week to God. Now, quite honestly, for just about all of this, is that, is it going to hurt us to give $10 a week? Are most of us going to miss that? You know, I mean, you just go, go to Java Zone a couple of times, right? And you're all set. You know, there it is, you know. I mean, for most of us, that wouldn't cost us anything. So are you really giving to God? Are you really giving to God? How did, how did God exhibit his love for us? He gave the extra, most extravagant possible gift God could ever give to demonstrate his love. If you love God, you'll give. And it, you won't be tied to some silly percentage or amount. You'll give until it costs you something. And you'll be generous. What the scripture? It was the end of um, Samuel, I think it is. He said, I'm not going to give the Lord anything that doesn't cost me something. You know, and the more you love someone, the more you'll give to that person. What's it cost you to give to God? It doesn't cost you anything. You really love them. Paul's saying these people gave of their poverty. And not only as we had hope, but they first gave themselves to the Lord. 
them to us by the will of God. Who do, what do they give to God first? All right. So if you've given yourself to God, then anything else, right, is not that tough. You realize your very next breath you owe to God. And he's saying they gave it themselves. So we urge Titus that as he had begun, so he would also complete this grace in you as well. But as you abound in everything, in faith and speech and knowledge and all diligence and in your love for us, see that you abound in this grace also. Paul's putting a little guilt trip on him here. Basically saying, you know, you abound in everything. Now, Corinth was the fat cat church, right? They, had, they were the wealthy church. They had money, more money than they knew what to do with. And Paul is saying, you know, you have abounded in faith and speech and knowledge. Look at the giftedness in your church. Look at what you have. Now abound in this grace also. What is this? That's what it says, in this grace. You ever, you ever realize that giving God, giving to God is an act of worship? It's, it is a privilege to give to God. Did you know that? It's a privilege to give to him. It's a privilege. It's not a burden. The Macedonians weren't giving something they didn't have. Right? They gave what they, they had. Giving a, a sacrificial. They gave sacrificially. They right. People use this passage to say, you know, give something expecting God to provide it. No. And I thought that. Yeah. No, that's not what God. In fact, later on, it's good. In, in the passage down a little ways, he says, you give what you have, not what you don't have. All right. Now, here's another here's another principle here. OK, if you give to the Lord so much that you can't meet your obligations, that's not right either. You understand what I just said? If you have financial obligations. And you say, well, okay, I can pay the mortgage or I can give the church my tithe. I'll give the church my tithe. No, God expects you to pay your mortgage, right? Now, it may be the case you need to downsize, downsize and, and other. You may need to do that, all right? And that may be something that you may need to consider. But God is not saying steal from someone else to give to me. Steal from your debtors or from the people you owe debt to in order to give me my portion. No. You, you pay your debts. Christians, every Christian should pay their debts. Unless it's unless there's a an emergency or something beyond your, your ability, a catastrophe, some something that comes your way, some circumstance, special circumstance, you should live your life so that you live within the boundaries of what God has given to you and not beyond that. Learn to live within those boundaries. You'll have money to give. And Paul is telling the that the Macedonians, they gave of themselves, and then they gave to the point where it was costing them something to give. In fact, it was costing them to the point that Paul was worried about taking it because he knew that they needed it worse. And they said, no, you take it. We want you to take this gift. And what Paul says is actually giving to God is a, it's a privilege. Let's say 
forget your political persuasion for a minute. Okay, if you're a Democrat, I feel sorry if you. No, I'm just joking. Forget your political persuasion for a minute. All right. Suppose you went home and you picked up you you got a letter in the mailbox, and it's from the White House. And I said, uh, coming Saturday after next, next, the president would like to come over and eat dinner with you at your house. I'm saying forget your political persuasion for a minute. Now, what would you do? Well, you clean the house up first. What would you serve him? What I eat. You're going to be happy. What would you serve the president? If he came to your house, he said, I want to come to your house and just, you know, I'm going to come over for the evening, you know, and uh, have dinner with you. What would you, what would you serve him? Again, forget your political persuasion or anything like that. Just, you know, what would you, you'd slay the fatted calf. Most of us would, you know, try to find, uh, and it would cost us something, right? We'd try to find the biggest, I'd find the biggest Texas steak I could get my hands on, you know. Because, because it's not about him. It's about the privilege of all, of the of the 350 million people in the United States, the president, the president is going to come and eat. I'm saying for, see, she doesn't play along with the gag here, you know. Whatever, whatever it is, you, but the point is, the point is, you wouldn't serve him a, a cold hot dog and a bowl of cereal. I mean, we, most of us, again, forget your political persuasion. She doesn't catch it. You know. Well, whatever, whether it's a steak or what, you'd, you'd make something nice. You'd, we, we would all do that. Come on. We'd all make, we would all. Yeah, see, she, she's just not playing along. She's, she's, she's being, she's just being Brenda. You know, you got to ignore her now and then, you know. Yeah. You wouldn't go for no steak, though, would you? Well, the whole point. I understand. I gotta give you. The whole point is, you would, you would, you would consider it an honor that you would be permitted to have the president come over and eat dinner with you. See. Same thing. Same thing. See, I'm trying. You're missing. <laughs> you know what? If I had to cook, and if in, and the bomb came, he's gonna eat what I'm eating. Yeah, but the whole. Let me ask you this. Yeah. What would you feed the bomb? He was hungry. Whatever I'm eating that day. If I was eating steak that day and the bum came over, he'd get a steak along with me. He's saying. It's a special occasion, you know. The president's saying, "I'm going to come and I'm going to I'm going to come over next weekend and have dinner with you." You know, um, you know, I, I would go out. I'd I'd try to find something really nice to serve the president. I mean, you know, to to think that that of all of the people he could have dinner with, he would choose me. I would consider it a privilege to have the president over or whoever, you know. Okay, you got some famous sports figure or something like that, you know, that, that's going to come over. You're, you consider it a privilege, and that's what Paul's trying to get at here. It is a privilege to give it on. Yeah, John MacArthur tomorrow. It's a privilege. It's a privilege to give. Boy, I'll tell you, I, that was a bad illustration. I got a. <laughs>
I think everybody got it but Brenda. Can you all explain it to her during the break? You know, help her understand what, I was, what the point I was trying to make here, you know. Well, I cooked something I knew how, and I know how to cook steak, I'll tell you that right now, you know. But the whole point is, it would be, I would consider it an honor to have somebody, to have the President of the United States, regardless, even if it was Clinton, Right. You know, I would have considered it an honor. You mean the next president? Yeah. Yeah. I would have considered it. No, she's the she's the uh, harlot of Revelation uh, chapter twelve. That's our, no. But uh, so I heard somebody say that. I don't believe that. But um, I heard somebody say that. That's not on the tape, is it? Yeah, it is. But the the. Uh, the whole point, the whole point is if somebody, I didn't give a name, if somebody were, if the President of the United States was going to come over, you would consider it a privilege and an honor to be able to serve him. Whatever it is you were serving, whatever you made, it would be an honor to have him there. All right. And that's what Paul is saying. It is an honor. Think about it. God saved you. You didn't do anything to save yourself. He saved you. He chose you. He redeemed you. He gave you your abilities, every ability you have. He's given you every opportunity you have. He's given you the next breath. He's given you every nickel, every dime, every penny you have. All of that is his. All of that is, is a grace gift from him. And it is a privilege, we should consider it a privilege, to have the opportunity to give something back to him. It, it's a privilege. To be able to give to God. It's an honor to do that. After all he's done for us. And Paul's saying, I want you to be partaker of this grace also. Grace. What is grace? It's a gift. It's a, it's a, it's a wonderful privilege to give to God. It, it's not, it should not be a chore to us. We should not say, oh no, not, I got to get our offering plates come along. It's, it's a joy. It's a joy. I love giving gifts to my wife. I love it. You know, um, she likes the simplest things, the things that make her laugh. And I have more fun going and getting, you know, I go to, we went to the, uh, to, um, the drugstore and I had to get her this bubble gun, you know, that makes these bubbles. <laughs> you know, so it, you put in a thing that shoots these millions of bubbles. She had more fun with that stupid thing. She's 56 going on six, you know, but she had more fun with that. But it's a joy. It's fun to do that. It's a joy for me to give things to her. It's not a chore. And, and unfortunately, I think when it comes to giving to the Lord, we consider it a chore. It's a burden. We, you know, how can I get, how much can I get away with? And, you know, how, how little can I get away with? I think it's because the ministers teach us the way they bring it across. You know, it's like no. I'll tell you what. Your it may be ten percent. It may be part of them, but I think the issue is ultimately us. Well, if you don't know, then I'm, I'm watching yeah. you to come to class, so I know better now. But I can't say that for the other kind of right. because they don't know. It's the way they whip you over the head about giving. You know. It's like a guilt, a guilt trip is the way they put it out, mm -hmm. really. And so, what what can you say? You know, if, if we're not there, to we're going to get to that in chapter nine. Okay.
Yeah, if we ever get there. I like the way she Well, if we ever get there, we'll get you know. We've only been here an hour. We've gotten through seven verses. All right. We'll, we'll speed up. I speak not by commandment, but I am testing the sincerity of your love by the diligence of others. What's he saying there? I'm not telling you to do this by way of commandment. So he's not falling into the trap of those preachers. He's not putting them on a guilt trip. Verse 8. He's saying, I'm not speaking that by commandment. I'm just testing the sincerity of your love by the diligence. What's the sincerity of your love? Do you really love other people? If you do, you're going to give. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. Who was the most wealthy individual in the universe? And what did he do? Give it all up. He gave it all up. Giving, Christian giving, that means show uh, identification of the Christian. If you really love other people, prove it. How do you prove it? You get of yourself, of your treasure, of your time. Give. And what did Christ do? Well, I mean, he stepped out of glory and became one of us. And, you know, he didn't he didn't wind up in a palace somewhere. He wound up in a manger. His parents were dirt poor. He was a peasant. He worked for a living. He had one set of clothes. That, that was the ones he wore. He was not wealthy. Why did he do that? So that we could become rich. Rich in what? In money? What are the true riches? Spiritual. Relationship. It has to do with the relationship. Stop and think about it. What is, what is the most valuable thing for you on this planet? Your family and your friends. That's it. Excluding God, the most important thing to me is my wife. That's, that's what's really important. Money's nice, a car's nice, a house is nice. But you know what? They don't replace her. That's what's really important. And what's really important eternally is not the gold streets of heaven and the mansion over the hilltop and all that other stuff. It is God. It is the relationship we are going to have with him in eternity. That's, that's what's valuable. You know, not things. And in this I give advice. It is to your advantage not only to be doing what you began and were desiring to do a year ago. In other words, they, had, they knew about this some time before. But now you must also complete the doing of it. So evidently, what had happened between a year ago and then? And when Paul was writing this? They stopped giving. Why did they stop giving, do you think? Possibly. Yeah, the guy's a bum. He's just going to fleece you, take the money and run. Can't trust him. You trust us, but you can't trust Paul. 
it fell off. They're for they they decided, they they got all razzed up about it a year ago to do this, and then things cooled off. They decided maybe it wasn't that important anymore. And quite honestly, I think there's a very real possibility it was the false teachers that were jading them against Paul. And Paul says, you know, you started it. Hey, let's finish it. Complete it. Just as there's a readiness to desire it, there may, there may also be a completion out of what you have. For if there is first a willing mind is accepted according to what one has and not according to what he does not have. God is more interested in why you give than what you give. God does not want you to give what you don't have. God wants you to give what you do have. If I only had a million dollars, I'd give half of it to God. Would you? It's easy for us to say that, right? Until we get it. God wants you, what are you doing with the dollar in your pocket? Not the million that you think you might get someday. What about the dollar in your pocket now? What, what, what are you doing with it? It's what you have, not what you don't have. And what's your heart in it? Why, why are you doing this? For I do not mean that others should be eased and you be burdened. I'm not saying that you need to give so others can take it easy. That's not the point. But by an equality that now at this time your abundance may supply their lack, that their abundance may also supply your lack, that there be equality. What's the idea there? Well, and when you give, you help someone else in their need so that when you have a need, they'll help you. As is written, he who gathered much had nothing left over, and he who gathered little had no lack. lack. What's that referring to? The manna, right? Remember? So the person who gathered little had... Enough, the person who gathered a lot didn't have anything left over. You had just enough. God took care of what you needed. But thanks be to God who puts the same earnest care for you into the heart of Titus. For he not only accepted the exhortation, but being more diligent, he went to you of his own accord. And we have sent with him the brother whose praise is in the gospel throughout all the churches. Well, who is this? Well, this guy's not named. All right. But evidently, everybody knew who he was. So who did Paul send to Corinth to get the collection? Titus and an independent auditing firm. In the name of this guy, who we don't know. It was an independent person. And, and why did Paul do that? Accountability. No one could say, Paul... Taking it from, and by the way, let's under, let's just understand something. Accountability is a good thing. It's a good thing to have. Um, it's it's easy to become lazy when you're not accountable. And Paul's saying, just so that no one can say, "I'm in it for the money," that I've stolen the money, that I've not used it appropriately. We have this brother here that everybody in all the churches know, who independently verifies the purity of our motives, and that the money you give is actually going to where we say it's going. There's no question. And by the way, if you belong to a church where they don't let you know where they're spending the money, don't go there and stop giving. 
Now, that doesn't mean that you have to know the pastor's salary and all that. That's not the point. The point is that there is an accountability in place so that the monies that are given are used appropriately. So do, do you think that, um, like, uh, you know, I've heard where if you have a trustee this place, but the pastors are still, like, over top of all the money, don't that kind of worry you? That if he don't trust the trustees enough, that he's got to be in on every movement of the money? Yeah. Um, yeah, that is a problem. Yeah, that is that is an issue. Is that an issue? Yeah, that is an issue. I mean, at Open Door here, you know, we have the pastoral staff, and then there's the church stewardship board, five people that are that are that are been drawn from the membership, and they know where all the money's going. Yeah, I was on the finance council. Every move that the money's making. I don't know where you know every move the money's going. No, he doesn't. There's budgets. That's what you have budgets but, for. Because I know these churches is trying to build, and I noticed that, and I always say it. They also they talk about they're trying to build and stuff, and I said, but where's your pastor in on it? Because I noticed that the pastors in on every movement of the money, they never can seem to get anywhere. Mm-hmm. You know, to me, I, what yeah. I've seen, in, 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 especially in our organization, is, is they always on top of the money. They they got their hands right in. Yeah, the they point is the checks and all that kind no, of that that shouldn't be. You, yeah. you need you need to have you need to have checks and balances. Right. That's that's an appropriate thing. And Paul here, Paul saying, I want to check some balances. Not that I was going to steal the money, but I don't want anybody to even think the possibility of me stealing the money. Right. I want to avoid all appearances of impropriety. And I know here at the Open Door, for example, the church stewardship board, they know where the money's going. And in fact, they do know what all of the pastors make. You know, they know now the congregation does not. But the church stewardship board reviews the salaries and reviews the finances of the church and knows where the money's going. They don't know that you spent $35 on paper last month, but they know what the paper budget is. You know, and, and we, they know that. And they, they, they watch that. You know, so that there, and we're also part of the ECFA, which has some very stringent accounting guidelines. And we are audited by an independent auditing firm each year. You know, the point is to be above board, to be completely open, you know, so there's no question of impropriety. You know, there's, there's no, you know, when you, when you have a, an organization where the pastor has been able to, you know, embezzle $50,000 a year and nobody knows it, you got a problem, okay? There needs to be an accounting. And Paul is saying here, I have an accounting. We got this brother here that everybody knows that and it was chosen by the churches, not by me. Beware of the pastor who has all of his family on the board. You know, you want checks and balances, all right? Um you know, some of these charismatic guys, you know, their wife is the head of the board. And they got their two kids in on it. You know, it's a it's a it's a family operation. You got to watch that. All right. You want to you want accountability. You want openness and appropriate levels of openness that, you know, where the people know where the money's going. You should be able to go to your church and say, what did we spend our money for last year? And they should be able to tell you. And if they say, well, nobody knows that the pastor takes care of all of that. You should have, you know, whistles and bells and alarms and lights flashing and because that, that's that's not appropriate. Paul is saying, I've built into this collection I'm taking 
checks and balances. And it's just to ensure that no one could say, hey, Paul's skimming some money off the top. Well, should the pastor know every dime has been in the church? And it has to come across his desk first? You should know, you know, you should basically know where the money's going and that. It depends on the size of the church, too. But if you have a budget, like you say, for Pagro, why would you have to take everything across the desk? You shouldn't have to. That guy's got, he's got control problems. I know some people like that. He's got control issues, you know. And it says here, and we have sent with him this brother who's praised in the gospel throughout all the churches, and not only that, but who also was chosen by the churches, not by me. He was chosen by the churches to travel with us with this gift, which is ministered by us to the glory of the Lord himself and to show your ready mind Avoiding this, that anyone should blame us in this lavish gift, which is administered by us, providing, proving, providing honorable things, not only in the sight of the Lord, but in the sight of men. Paul says, I wanted this guy to go along with us so that he could vouch that we are handling this money correctly, that we are not taking advantage of you people. We are not taking your money and running off to another country with it inappropriately, but that it's being used for what you gave it for. I'm account and Paul is saying I've made myself accountable to the churches through their representative that they chose, not me. They chose this man to represent them, and I wanted that so that no one could say we're stealing the money. Paul wanted accountability. Yeah. Yeah. And we have sent with him, with them, our brother whom we have often proved diligent in many things, but now much more diligent because of the great confidence which we have in you. If anyone inquires about Titus, he is my partner and fellow worker concerning you. If our brethren are inquired about, they are messengers of the churches, the glory of Christ. Therefore show to them and before the churches the proof of your love and of our boasting in your behalf. Paul saying, I'm sending the delegation to you, not only Titus, but this man who's going to come to you Receive them as you would receive me. They are my official delegation in this matter of the collection for the saints. And and everything is open, above board, out in the... There's nothing under the table, nothing hidden. All right? And and by the way, just, just as an aside here, one of the things I think as Christians we need to do is... And if the tax guy was in here, he'd agree with me, is that... um. Everything we should do should be above board, honest, legal. Not, don't, don't do things under the table. Don't do things under the table. You know, um, as a church, you know, when you handle your finances at the church, everything needs to be completely above board, honest, open. Pay your taxes. If you owe taxes, pay your taxes. You know, don't, don't try to sneak anything in. Because that would not be honest. You need to be above reproach. What has gotten a lot of these churches nowadays into trouble is all of the funny stuff they do with the money. Don't do anything funny. Don't do anything funny. Now concerning the ministering to the saints, it's superfluous for me to write to you, for I know your willingness about which I boast of you to the Macedonians, that Achaia was ready a year ago and your zeal has stirred up the majority. Paul's saying, you know, I was boasting about you guys giving a big gift for the He's putting a little bit of a guilt trip on him here. You know, he's, he's working on him. 
saying, you know, I, I've been boasting about you guys to the churches up here in Macedonia, and it sort of spurred them on to give because they don't want to not give if you're giving. Yet I've sent the brethren, lest our boasting of you should be in vain in this respect, that as I said, you may be ready. Paul saying, I sent the brethren ahead so that you can get ready to give this gift so you don't make me look bad because I was boasting about your generosity. Thus, if some Macedonians come with me and find you unprepared, Paul says, I don't want to bring all the Macedonians down who I've been saying, boy, you know, this Corinthian church, they're on the ball. You know, they've got a good gift here. We're going to take it back and really be able to help the saints. And I come down there and you give me some pittance for a offering and make me look bad. Should be ashamed of this confident boasting. Therefore, I thought it necessary to exhort the brethren to go to you ahead of time and prepare your generous gift before. And he said, I've sent Timothy, I've sent Titus and this other guy down to, a, to get the gift together so that when I come down there, it's all ready. And I don't come down there and all of a sudden you don't have you're not ready, and these Macedonians think, well, what's going on here? And she's working them a little bit. But you know what? What did the Corinthians already decided to do a year ago? They had already decided to give this money. It's not like Paul's trying to shake them down or anything like that. They had already made the commitment to do this. You know, prepare your generous gift beforehand, which you had previously promised. See, that's what it is. You promised this. That it might be ready as a matter of generosity and not as a grudging obligation. I don't want to come down here and say, oh, well, you know, if we have to give the money, I want you to be ready. You already promised to give it. You already made the commitment to give it. Now give it. So that when I come down there, it's ready to go so we can take it back to the saints at Jerusalem. Thank you for listening. This podcast was made in part with creative consulting and production assistance by Third Mass Studio. For your production needs, send an email to thirdmassstudio at gmail.com. For other lectures in this series and more biblical media resources, visit theopenword.org.